Uh, we are in Mark chapter 16. We are finishing the book of Mark. Crazy. Has the, has the gospel of Mark blessed you in any way? Yeah? Uh, I know this is really awkward, and I don't like to speak in public, obviously. Um, but if you could just throw out one word that God has spoken to you through the, the study of Mark. I know this is probably really complicated to think about on a Thursday evening, but one word. What's one thing that God has spoken to you? I heard something over here. Faith. Reality. Justice. Beautiful. Grace. Sacrifice. Amazing. Love. That's awesome. Someone else said something. What was it? Servant. Servant. So cool. So cool. Well, let's finish our study. Starting in verse 1, let's pray real quick as we get started. Father, thank you so much for tonight. We open ourselves up to, to you, God. We've had busy days, crazy weeks, um, maybe crazy years, God, and just we're just longing for a, a word from you tonight. We're longing to hear you speak to our hearts in that still, small voice that, that we crave so much on a daily basis. And God, as we read your word, and as we uh, just speak about the, the greatest miracle of all, God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. That this uh, beautiful reality, this beautiful creation that you inaugurated in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ would begin to birth within us a new life, a life that is modeled after the kingdom of heaven. Speak to our hearts tonight. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Amen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, from tremble, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In verse 9, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a little, a little note, or it's all in italicized after this. Uh, that means that the early manuscripts don't have this section in them. So remember, I know I'm pausing, we'll get there in a second. Um, the ESV Bible is taken from a group of manuscripts that are older, right? And there's fewer of them. And the New King James and a couple others are taken from some manuscripts that are newer, and there's a, a little bit more of them, okay? So what we read here isn't in the old ones, it's in the new ones. You following me so far? 
All that means is, is that either A, maybe somebody added this later on as they were reading the Gospel of Mark and as the other Gospels were, were, were written. Um, but what we see here, everything that's said here is perfectly aligned with everything that happens in the other three Gospels. So there's no reason to question if this is Scripture or if we should even read it. You, everyone follow me so far? Okay. Everybody good? All right. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive they had, uh, and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Jesus, or sorry, after these things, he appeared to another, in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the, to the whole creation, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Amen. It's safe to say that the disciples had zero expectation that their Messiah would rise from the dead after his crucifixion. There had been many Jewish uh, revolutions that had taken place before this, and, and the disciples had probably seen at least a couple uh, people rise up in the Jewish culture that said, we are going to save, I'm going to save us from the Roman rule. Remember, at the time, uh, Israel was longing for the long-awaited Messiah to come and to save them from the political situation that they were in. But time and time again, uh, Rome would take that leader that was leading that revolution and they would execute them and basically stamp out any type of rebellion that could possibly happen. And the followers of this leader were left with two choices. Either try to get away with your own skin because the Romans are probably going to come after you in a minute or find a new leader. And so the disciples, seeing this pattern throughout the, the short time in history of leaders being uh, executed and their followers trying to find something to do, um, they chose the latter. And for three days or more, they hid and they, they wept and they grieved. And they grieved not only the loss of their friend and their teacher, but they also were grieving the loss of what they thought was the hope of Israel. They thought that their hope, what they had believed in, you know, when Peter said, I believe that you are the son of God, what they were saying was, was we think you are the Messiah and you're going to save us. What they, what they thought, which was, which was wrong, was that what God was going to save them from was their immediate political situation, right? But they didn't realize that God had bigger things on his mind. And you also have to understand that, that as, they were wait, as they were grieving, they, they really genuinely felt no sense of hope. 
There was nothing on the horizon. Their leader was dead. What they thought was the savior had died and everything was never gonna be the same again. As they sat in their grief, Mary Magdalene burst into their room and says, Jesus is alive. And they didn't believe her. Two, uh, two disciples, which you can read about in Luke chapter 24, that on the road to Emmaus is what I think is what these two, who these two disciples are, say, Jesus is alive, and they don't believe him. Sometimes, you know, when you hear uh, modernists, and especially rationalists, that don't believe in the resurrection, they'll say something like this. You know, back then, of course they believed in the resurrection, but, but nowadays we know that sort of thing isn't a possibility. Uh, and newsflash for the modern narcissists out there, uh, people in Jesus' day didn't think resurrection was a possibility either. It isn't like modern science has suddenly told us, oh, by the way, people actually can't rise from the dead. You know, they thought that also. Uh, there, was, there was no possibility that the Messiah, when, and they were well studied in the scriptures, there was no possibility for them that the Messiah would die and then rise again on the third day. That is not a possibility. But then it happened. And then Jesus physically shows up in front of them. And when I read this, this, this passage of scripture, you know, I feel like your, your view of God and that the character of God says a lot about what you get from this. So when you see him say, Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief, I think some people uh, view that as Jesus taking a big stick and whacking him upside the head. Like, what's wrong with you? Get in line, you know? Um, but I don't think that's what I see when I, when I read that. I feel like Jesus lovingly is probably saying something like, why didn't you trust me? You know, in my life, and I've, when I've seen rebuke from God in my in my experiences, his rebuke is so loving that it just causes me to crumble even more. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it isn't like someone smacking you upside the head. It is so loving and sweet that it just causes you to, to long for more of him. Do you get what I'm saying? So I feel like Jesus, when he comes in and he says, you know, he rebukes them, it was such a loving way to say, why didn't you trust me? You know me. Of course I was going to come back. <laughs> What is absolutely sure is that when the disciples saw the risen Lord, everything changed. Their understanding of the Old Testament changed. Their understanding of the life and teaching of Jesus changed. Their view of his death changed. Their view of their own lives changed. And their purpose changed. And tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take a journey. And we're going to trace the theme of the resurrection from the beginning of Scripture all the way through the end. What we're going to see, we're going to see three different scenes, okay? Scene number one is what was said. Scene number two is what happened. And scene number three is what it means, okay? Scene number one is what was said. Scene number two is what happened. And scene number three is what it means. And as we do this, our hope is that we will see that the resurrection is, first of all, through the grand narrative of the entire scripture. The, the fancy word theologians like to use is the meta-narrative of the scripture, right? We want to see that the resurrection isn't just something that just came up in the gospels, that, but this was part of God's sovereign plan from the beginning all the way through. You, you follow me? But we also want to see that just as the disciples' lives completely changed, tonight, we're longing for the same change, okay? We're longing to see the same type of, oh my gosh, that's what that means? You know, from the beginning all the way to the end. Are you with me? Okay, 
what was said. Let's start there. So real quickly, to restate, I know I already said this, but I'm going I'm to hammer this home. Israel did not expect the Messiah to first of all die and then second of all rise again from the dead. Their theology of the resurrection was very splintered at the time of Jesus. If you remember earlier in the Gospels, there's a group of religious leaders that came to Jesus. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they tried to, they tried to um, get him to say something that was stupid. Remember, they asked him a question, you know, about the, the, the woman who's had like seven husbands and like whose husband is, uh, whose wife is she going to be in the end, right? You follow me? Uh, but there was a group of people that believed in the resurrection. And in Jewish thought, the Jewish theology at the time, the resurrection was one big event that was going to happen at the end of days, right? One big event where all the people that were faithful to the God of Israel were going to rise up in a physical, bodily resurrection. There was no pre-resurrection. There was no, like, one person's going to be resurrected over here and then another one over here, right? There, that, that wasn't a thing. But what we see, and we're going to start in the New Testament and go all the way back, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? This is Paul writing, a former Pharisee, someone who believed in the resurrection, as in what I just explained, says this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Very important, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Super important. What does Paul mean by according to the scriptures? And if the Old Testament speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah, where is it? What did Paul mean? A little pause right now. I'm just going to prepare you all. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture tonight, okay? So, like, warm up your fingers, like, breathe in them a little bit. If you have your Bible, get ready. We're going to start all the way in the beginning, go all the way through, okay? So I'm sorry if you don't like that, but you can just listen. Paul is saying here that the whole of Scripture speaks to the Messiah's life and to specifically his death and his resurrection. Put it another way, Israel's history becomes an analogy for the life of the Messiah, Okay? Israel's history becomes an analogy for the life of the Messiah. And this is what Jewish thinkers miss is what, that their experience with the God of Israel was not just serving a sign as his presence and his faithfulness to that specific nation. What God was doing was he was creating this beautiful image that would come through the Messiah. He was painting a picture so that when people looked back, they would see, oh, that's what the Messiah was going to look like. So let's begin. Turn to Genesis chapter 12, okay? Flip over there, type your way there, whatever you got to do. Genesis chapter 12. One of the central passages of the book of Genesis, very important. Starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." 
God is saying here, Abram, I want, I want to intervene into human, human history, and I'm going to use you to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, if you will, breathe new life into your family. Remember, Abram and Sarah couldn't have kids. It was a, they were a barren couple. And what he says is, I'm going to breathe new life into you, and I'm going to raise up an entire nation that I'm going to bless the entire world through. Through your family, through this nation that I am creating, all of the world is going to be blessed. More, put it more like bluntly, God is saying like uh, through this nation, um, people are going to be able to experience me like they never have before. Through you, through this, this line, I'm going to do something that hasn't been done yet. So you guys know the story. Abram gets up. He leaves his father's home. He has faith, and that was what he was justified by. But you guys know the story. It wasn't that easy, right? From, beginning, from the beginning all the way to the end of this story of Abraham's life, over and over we see struggles. We see pain. We see, uh, we see faith. We see unbelief. We see Abraham go through this constant, this constant suffering because because Sarah could not have kids. And this is what Abraham is asking is in, in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 2. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. You see, there was a moment of suffering. There was a moment of questioning. There was a moment when it looked like the promise was not about to come to fruition. But now turn to chapter 21 of Genesis, starting in verse 1. A few pages over. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and at, and at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave, gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Through Isaac and through the life of Abraham, God is ushering in a new life, okay? He has a promise that he gives Abraham. There's a moment of suffering and questioning and what is going on. But then through God's promise being fulfilled, there is a new life that is born. And through that new life, God would bring a new relationship to the people of the world with himself, okay? Everybody with me? Yeah. All right. Now turn to Exodus chapter 3. Again, prepare yourself. There's a lot of flipping that's going to be going on. Exodus chapter 3. Then the Lord said, this is verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, up until this point, let me catch you up to speed. Up until this point, the promise isn't looking that great, Okay. The promise that God was going to bless all the nations through Israel, and Israel was going to be this amazing chosen nation, is not looking so hot. 
Okay, Israel is in the midst of slavery. They're in the, they are building the Egyptian empire through slave work, right? They were there because of Joseph and everything was prosperous, but they fell out of graces somehow with the Pharaoh that was currently there. And that Pharaoh just put them to work. And it was miserable. And they were crying out to God saying, God, why have you abandoned us? Where are you? And God was silent. But you know the story. God reaches out to a man named Moses. He's going to bring up, raise up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And you know how it goes. Moses goes back to Egypt. He goes before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, right? You've all seen the, the Disney movie, right? Um, Moses Moses comes and says, let my people go. And 10 times God brings a plague and a plague and a plague and brings this misery upon the Egyptians until the Pharaoh was like, okay, you can go. And it took his firstborn son dying. So the Israelites pack up their belongings. They begin to prepare to leave and they're filled with this amazing wonder and awe. And they're like, oh my gosh, maybe God really does hear our prayers. Maybe he is after all the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's actually going to do something in our lives. And then they see the Pharaoh's armies coming. Right? Exodus 14.10, when, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they, greatly, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us, out, taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. A word for another teaching is maybe, there's a lot of times when we just need to be silent. Amen? You know, there are times in our lives when we're trying to like, you know, ring off all the prayer requests to hopefully get our way. Like, you know, everything's happening. And there are times when we just need to, excuse me, shut up and listen to the Lord. Amen. Sorry, I know, bad words. You guys know how the story goes. God divides the Reed Sea and the people of Israel walk through. They get to the other side and then the seas close on top of the Pharaoh's armies and they are gone forever. And, and then obviously that's not the end of the story. It takes you know, a few years, to, to put it nicely, for them to get to Canaan. But what God did, salvation had come and what he had just done is done what he had just done was he was faithful to his promise. He was breathing in a new life, a new nation into this people, this group of slaves that were pretty much worthless to everybody else in the world. He was breathing in a new life and in the land of Israel, there would be a new mission for these Israelites to be a light for the rest of the world. There are many stories that we could cover tonight in the Old Testament that show glimpses of the resurrection. But I want, what I want us to see tonight is three things. In these stories, there's a promise of salvation, okay? There's a promise of a new life, a new creation, if you will, a new, uh, a new, mission, a new nation. And then secondly, there's a time of suffering. There's a time when there's just utterly decay, like everything looks miserable. No hope is involved in these moments, and then third, there is a raising up from God. 
There's God stepping in, bringing his salvation, and then raising up the new life that he had intended in the beginning. David paints this picture, and and this verse in Psalm 16 is so important because both Peter and Paul quote it when they're talking about the resurrection. Psalm 16, verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Just as God was faithful to the Israelites to promise them something, bring them through the misery and the suffering, and then ultimately raise them up, God was the same, was faithful to his son, Jesus Christ. In the famous passage, Isaiah 53, which we read a lot of times on Good Friday because it is one of the most direct prophecies that the Messiah would come and suffer for the sins of the world. There's this passage in, 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 in verse 10 where, he's, where, where Isaiah says, um, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, watch this, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Clearly, Isaiah got that even though there'd be suffering for the Messiah, there would be a rising up. There would be where God is faithful to bring up his Messiah and that his days would be prolonged, if you will, right? This is beautiful imagery in the Old Testament that the promised Messiah would suffer. But you know the problem. You know the problem. The problem is Israel can never get their life together. Over and over, they would never live the way God intended them. Their, their worship of God wouldn't align with their daily life practices. And over and over, there's this clear, you, you end the Old Testament saying, we need something else. Something else needs to happen. Israel isn't going to be able to save the rest of the world. There needs to be somebody else. And that person is Jesus Christ. All of this leads us ultimately to the work of Jesus Christ, which we have studied in the Gospel of Mark. So from the disciples' perspective, is everybody with me? Okay, we're in the second scene, what happened, all right? We're getting there. From the disciples' perspective, they, again, they just lost their promise. They thought Jesus was the Messiah. He was dead. The victory was not theirs. It was over. The power of darknesses had won. It was over. But then Jesus steps onto the scene. And in this chapter, which we read, there are so many beautiful stories that are hinted at that I would love to get into, like when Jesus is appearing to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, or again, the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, what a beautiful passage of scripture about how God talks to us and leads us in Luke 24. If you have time to go back and read those, those are amazing. But what we see happening is Jesus is raised from the dead and he begins restoring his disciples. One by one, he begins to restore them to what he has for them in the future, right? In, in, in the life of Thomas, we get this glimpse of, of Jesus restoring his faith. He says, come here, Thomas, you doubted. Look at, look at my wrist, touch my hands, touch my wrist, touch my side. I'm here, have faith. Okay. With Peter, he's restoring Peter's love. Three times as they're eating fish for breakfast, he says, Peter, do you love me? And over and over, he restores Peter's love for him. Just as he had denied him three times, he is restored three times. And then throughout this story, what we see is as Jesus is restoring, he begins to give a commission to his disciples. He breathes 
within them the Holy Spirit. They are sealed in this moment. You can read that at the end of John. And he gives them the commission to go into all the world, and I love how Mark puts it, to preach to all of creation. Jesus begins to restore his disciples. Jesus did not stay dead. What the disciples saw was not a hallucination. It was not a lie conjured up to keep their little rebellion moving. No, this was the monumental moment in all of history. This was when Jesus, the real Jesus, bodily rose from the dead. He's not a spirit kind of walking around, just kind of, you know, hovering like we see in the movies, right? Like, he is real bodily, although very different because that same physical body that they could touch could walk through walls and stuff like that, right? But, but Jesus was real. He was alive, and nothing was ever going to be the same again. N.T. Wright says, we or the world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who inaugurates Jesus' new creation right in the middle of the old one. Amen. But what does this all mean? How did the disciples make sense of this? So they see this happen. They see Jesus come back. They touch him. They are restored by him. But, but what did they make sense? How did they make sense of it all? Turn to Romans chapter 6. Just a couple more passages tonight. Y'all are doing great. possibly one of my favorite passages in scripture. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have, we, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, if you're struggling with the idea of what does he mean by baptized, just Flip that word for immersed, maybe, is a better, is an easier way to understand, not better, easier way to understand that, immersed into Christ Jesus, into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set, for no one has died, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, when, he, when he's looking at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what he sees is, is because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's a new creation that's been sparked into human history. 
And there's a new life that his, the, the adoptive family of God is supposed to live in, right? When, when Jesus died on the cross, he had victory over sin, death, and the powers of darkness, amen? When he rose again on the third day, he inaugurated his kingdom. He said, I am the king, and this is my, everywhere more my will is done is my kingdom. And this new creation began in that moment. Jesus of Nazareth didn't just uh, usher in a new religious possibility. He didn't just give a new religious ethic. He didn't just provide a way to salvation. He gave a new creation that brings a new life and a new mission to his people. We have to understand that the resurrection of Jesus is not just an important moment in history. It is the moment when the new creation that God desired for the world was started. This is the moment. This is the moment where old things passed away and the new has come. One of our last verses, Colossians chapter three, you don't have to turn there. I'm gonna be reading this in the NIV because I think it just beautifully um, translated it. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, as God's, I'm skipping to verse 12, sorry. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, Clove yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, body you, are, you are called to be peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and the songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whenever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Paul is similarly to what he's saying in Romans is there's, because of the resurrection, there's a new life. And as adopted children into this new life, we're supposed to be defined by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Another side note, I'm getting um, off track, but it's okay. Um, I've heard a lot of people recently I mean, not recently, a lot of people love to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and they're very important, you know, the ability to, to teach or to speak in tongues or uh, to, to wisdom and knowledge and all that great stuff. But I don't hear a lot of people talk about the fruit of the Spirit as much, you know, but this is the character in which the gifts are supposed to be used, amen? And this is like, should be our, as people of God, this should be like something we write on our wall, like this is the person that I want to become, someone of this character. And then as Paul speaks of what the new life is like, he gives a new mission for the people of God. He said, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus dwell in your hearts. 
Admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this new mission, this new mission of the new life is doing all in the name of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean like uh, I'm going to go play a football game and say, yeah, in the name of Jesus, I won, right? That's, that's not what that means. You know, I hear a lot of people kind of use in the name of Jesus as like their period or their explanation point or whatever, right? Like, yay, I did it. You know, I'm going to get whatever I want now because I said in Jesus' name. That's not what that means. That means you're submitting to the will of Jesus no matter what. That means I'm taking my will, I'm putting it on the altar, and I say, I want to live my life according to the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus meaning Jesus' will for me. That means I'll put my work, I'll put my family, I'll put everything and say, God, how do you want me to do this? How do you want me to lead my family? How do you want me to love my neighbor? How do you want me to operate in my business? How do you want me to look for jobs? How do you want me to operate in church? I'm doing it all according to the name of Jesus. That is the mission of the church. That's the mission. It's to do all we can, do all we have, what God has given us in the name of Jesus. We should act as heralds by word and deed of this new kingdom. We should be heralds by word and deed of this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus Christ is our king. You know, sometimes people, you know, they go to one extreme or the other. They'll, do, they'll say all the words they need to say, but their lives don't live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or flip-flopped, sometimes they like privatized relationship with God, but they don't want to say anything about it, right? We have to be both. We have to be able to speak of our new king, but more importantly, live by it. Are you with me? This is the beautiful reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He brings to us a new creation, that out of that new creation comes a new life for us as believers, but then also a new mission. The problem is, is that there are many Christians who call, there are many people who call themselves Christians today and who are not living in that new creation given by their resurrection. There was an article done by Barna Research. If you don't know who Barna is, they're a, a Christian group who does studies and statistics and stuff like that. Um, and they, their, their article um, was about the percentage of young uh, adults, young self-proclaimed Christians, um, how many of them were resilient disciples. And that term resilient disciple sounds really intense. You're like, okay, like are they expected to be like Mother Teresa and C.S. Lewis over here? But, but that's actually not what they defined as a resilient disciple. Resilient disciples are, according to them, Christians who attend church at least monthly and engage in their, their church more than just attending a worship service. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They're committed to, the, to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And they express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Pretty simple, right? It's all of us in here, right? That's what a resilient disciple is. And in a study done of between ages 18 to 29, 10% were resilient disciples. Now, I realize tonight we have a lot more generations, um, you know, here tonight than just young adults. And uh, before we say, wow, look at those young people, they're ruining everything. Um, I think 
it's safe to say that this lack of authentic discipleship to Jesus is just a mirror of the greater issue in all generations in our church in the Western culture. I think this is a clear image of what's happening in our churches where something like 10% of people who claim to be Christians are resilient disciples. That's not living in the new creation. Many Christians today are just habitual churchgoers. They attend church, but they're not engaged in real discipleship to Jesus. A life dedicated to becoming more like him, a life proclaiming the good news, a a life of prayer and and stillness before him, longing to, to see his face is rare in our culture. So many Christians want a Jesus who takes away their sin, but they're not willing to to stand a Jesus who ushers them into a new life. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus' resurrection invites us into a new life, a life where humans become more human. What do I mean by that? More human like God intended, image bearers of him. Through his work, we are supposed to become more like he intended us to be in the first place, bearing his image like we were supposed to. This is our calling, this is our purpose, and this is what Jesus came to die for our sins and rise again to do. But are we walking in that? Are we walking in that, and are are we willing to do whatever it takes to get there? Because the reality is is that none of us in this lifetime will reach perfection. And thank God he doesn't ask for perfection. But what he does, he does require effort. Dallas Willard has this line, and it's just beautiful. grace grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort, right? We, we have to have effort in our faith with Jesus Christ. Not which saves us, but which, which causes us to reach out to Jesus more and more and more. So what do we do? Last passage tonight, Matthew chapter six. Turn there for me. Matthew chapter six, verse nine to 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer should take place, this prayer should take place in us and around us in two places. First of all, it should take place in our hearts. Our our lives should be an expression of this prayer. God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. I want part of that new creation. I want part of that new life that I get to be immersed in because of your resurrection. I want your will to be done in everything I do. I don't want one part of my life, God, that I want to hold on to. I want everything to be your will. And then secondly, that prayer needs to be an expression of what happens around us. It should become our prayer for our families. It should become the prayer for our jobs. It should become a prayer for our churches, our friends, neighbors, for the people around us. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, if it is your will through me, may people see this new kingdom. May they see a new life. May they see something different and want part in that. God, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. When the resurrection becomes uh, becomes part of the life of the disciple, and that disciple is so connected to God, heaven itself spews out of that person. When a person is so connected to God that they are living in that new life, their lives become a reflection of heaven itself. Their lives become a reflection of God's space, his reality, his will, his kingdom. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is our, is our opportunity to partake in the new life promised all the way to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It is our promise that the Messiah came, he had victory over our enemies, and now we get to live with him in a personal relationship forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you tonight. We ask that your spirit would come and just move in our hearts. Tonight, as our eyes are closed and our, our heads are bowed, tonight is a night that we are just going to pray that prayer. From the, the lips of Jesus himself, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe tonight for you, you're convicted because you realize you're not living in that new life that Jesus has given you. You're not living in the victory over sin, death, and the powers of darkness. You are uh, just a habitual churchgoer. I, I just call out to you and say, give your everything to Jesus. This is the best life that could possibly be lived. It's not about you, it's not about how great you are, it's not about your skills, your talents, your, uh, the way you look, your Instagram, your, uh, the people that follow you, even your influence, not about any of that. It is just about the life that is supposed to be lived in relationship with the Father. So pray tonight if that's you, God, your will be done in my life. Tonight, maybe you are a resilient disciple and you are walking with God hand in hand and yes, you have your, 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 your bumps along the road, but you are, you're just with him. I just call out to you also, pray this prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May this be the prayer of our church that when we walk into this building, we're not just walking in to check off um, our, our checkbox. Check we're, we're really trying and desperately waiting for God's kingdom to come present reality in our lives. To experience heaven on earth, to experience a reality when which we can't create on our own, we are just longing for God to open up for us. So if you are a resilient disciple tonight, I'm just gonna give you a minute to pray that prayer for your family, to pray it for your neighborhood, to pray it for your church, to pray it for your workplace, and any area that you find yourself in, your city, just pray, your kingdom come, your will be done.
God, we open ourselves up to you. Thank you for sending your son out of the immense love, the self-giving love of you, that we who are pretty much worthless, that you would die for our sins and that you would rise again and bring us into a life like yours, a life where we get to be connected with you and indwelled with your Holy Spirit, speaking to you and being listened to and hearing your voice. God, there's nothing greater in this life. We pray for our church. We pray for our families. We pray for our workplaces, God, for the people in those places that you would just reach out to them. For the ones who have yet to put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, may our lives through word and deed be something of a shining mirror into heaven. That the reflection of your kingdom would just be so brilliantly lit on our lives that that people would have to stop and question what is happening. We pray for the people that walk in tonight that are, that are not walking in that new life, God, that you would call out to them, that you would bring a community around them within this church that would help them walk into the life that you've called them to. We love you, God. We believe you for great things. Thank you for the gospel of Mark, and thank you that we have it written in our Bibles that we can read and study and understand. May you continue to teach us every day of our lives what it means to be your disciple. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.